Would you stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures from Mark 14, 26 to 31. And when they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all will fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Well, as we've said, uh, as we as we really round out the towards the end of the gospel according to Mark, a book we've been in on and off for, I believe it's over two years now. Um, we're not just doing this because this is what Christians do uh, or whatever. What we're trying to do in coming to all the scriptures, but specifically this ancient biography about Jesus, is to get to know this Jesus that we believe, many of you, I don't assume all of you, but many, most of you believe is still alive. That he is alive at the right hand of the Father. When we encounter this Jesus, we're not encountering, uh, even though it's an old book written long ago, we're not encountering a, f- a fragment of history. We're not encountering um, some old dead person that we're, you know, that's nice to think about. We, we believe we're encountering the Jesus who lives and who reigns and who is going to return again, that we will see in the flesh again one day. We're, we're trying to learn the shepherd's voice week in and week out. And this text that Jessica just read for us answers one question about who this Jesus is, which is, what does this Jesus do when he encounters failure in his disciples? Who is, what's he like when he comes face to face with just human weakness? And not just weakness, but, but, but straight up betrayal of him. I'm willing to go out on a wager, willing to, to, to wager, to bet that every one of us in this room has some memory. Maybe it's recent. Maybe it's years past. Maybe it's, maybe it's from early on and it's, it's becoming, you know, hazy and foggy and we can't quite remember. But some memory of deep failure. Either a friend we've let down, we've betrayed, uh, a family member. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it has something specifically to do with your discipleship to Jesus, a moment. I have several of these where you've In the heat of the moment, you didn't have the courage to really stand up and identify with your king. What does he think of that? What does he think of you? Now, maybe you're decades removed from that. Is he still bitter about that? Is he still hanging on to that? Can you ever really be certain that he's going to welcome you back with open arms? This is a text that's about all of those things. It's about all of those things. So we'll just jump straight in. We'll read it again. Um, first couple of verses here. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, just to recap, um, the last two weeks we were looking at 
um, the events of basically Jesus and his disciples sharing a Passover meal. This was kind of the last formal thing that they did together. They had the Passover meal uh, in the upper room in the city of Jerusalem, and then uh, Jesus took that Passover meal, and then he brought this whole new realm and range of meaning as he, taught, he lifted up the bread and he lifted up the wine. He said, actually, what's fundamentally going on here is that what we are going to remember from here on out is my body and my blood spilled. And in fact, you're going to take this as this new symbol, this new sacrament even, in remembrance of me. You're going to, when you gather, you're going to take this bread, take this wine, or this juice, however it may be, and you're going to remember me. You're going to remember my sacrifice on your behalf as the better and truer Passover lamb. And so that meal concluded, and we're told here that they left. They sung a hymn, which is actually the traditional way the Passover meal would be ended. They would usually read Psalms uh, 113 through 118 together. And then, so they did that, uh, evidently. And then they left. They went out on the Mount of Olives. And I actually have a, a picture, if you wouldn't mind putting it up there, Jeremiah. Um, I didn't take this one, although I have I've been to Israel once. It was incredible. What you have here is you're, you're basically, see that little, the bottom of that valley there? This is called the, um, the Kidron Valley. And on the left, that little rectangular building there, that's the Temple Mount. So that's the temple. This is a recent, I didn't take this picture, but this is recent. Um, so you've got the Temple Mount, and then you can see that it's, it falls into the Kidron Valley. And then on the other side going up, that's the Mount of Olives. So this, would, this was nighttime, of course, that we're reading about. But this is, the, this is it. Jesus and his disciples would have left the city, possibly passed along the outside wall here by the Temple Mount come down into this valley, and we're told that they're heading to the Mount of Olives right there. And in fact, the, the very next story we're going to read is Jesus and the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the foot of that mount. So it's just, it's all very close, it's very compact. And so this, this story takes place probably in the journey from the city down to the foot of the Mount of Olives. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus had quite a few conversations. They talked about a bunch of things. Mark just chooses to highlight this one. And it's a heavy one. The first thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus is going to present to them the certainty, the certainty of their suffering and his suffering. So he, he tells them, he says, look, you will all fall away. You're all going to fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is quoting the ancient Hebrew prophet, the Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7. This is a passage that was popularly understood to be about uh, basically the Messiah striking the nations and the people scattering in their unfaithfulness and fleeing. But Jesus is, is kind of recontextualizing this, and Jesus understands what this prophecy was fundamentally about was about actually the Messiah being struck. The Messiah was going to be struck. And the disciples were the ones that were going to flee in fear. So, simply put, what Jesus is saying is that, listen, you're all going to fall away. Every one of you. He just highlighted that one of them was going to betray him. and We, we know that was Judas at the, at the Last Supper. One of you is going to betray me, and they were all freaking out about who it was. And but now, maybe the disciples had a little bit of hope. Okay, we got past that betrayal thing. Now he says, listen, you're all going to fall away. In your own way, it's not going to be as extreme as the one who handed me over for money, but you're all going to leave me. None of you, not a single one of you, now the 11, 
are going to remain faithful to me through what's about to come. Trials are coming, suffering is coming, and this is an incredibly sobering statement from Jesus. Incredibly sobering. The point is, Jesus is once again, he's, he's mentioned this several times throughout the gospel already. He's, he's said, I'm going to die. And the disciples never seem to quite grasp it or understand it. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. It's going to be crazy, but yes, I will rise again. I will raise again to new life. But Jesus has mentioned this before explicitly. Now he's referencing it again. He's going to be struck. His mission, as Jesus understands it, necessarily involves suffering on behalf of the people that he is pursuing, that he desires to save. Jesus is going to be persecuted in the fullest, like sometimes we use that in a very flippant way, in a very half-hearted way. We refer to our own persecution and things that are very often very minimal or whatever. Jesus is going to be persecuted in the deepest, fullest, truest sense of the word. He's going to become a religious martyr for, for the claims that he's making, and the beliefs that he holds, even about himself. So the question is, the disciples are, are going to have to decide whether they will remain faithful to this Jesus through this persecution. Will they associate with a leader who is going to find himself on the wrong side of the dominant culture? Their situation, of course, is totally unique in history. I mean, Jesus was only incarnated for, for these, uh, you know, few decades. His public ministry only lasted a few years. So there's something unique here. Um, he would only be on the Mount of Olives awaiting his arrest and crucifixion one time. This only happened one time. So we can, we can set that there. But in a broader sense, we all have to stare down this same question. Jesus made a lot of promises to his disciples, and, and everyone virtually agrees that they are just as applicable for us, though in, in, our, in our own ways, in our own times, with our own distinctions. Jesus said, like in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Matthew 10, 22, he said, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. John 15, starting in verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So what Jesus promised them, we have, we have to learn to expect for ourselves as well. To walk humbly, certainly. We're not seeking out controversy. We're not seeking to be uh, antagonistic towards those around us. In fact, quite the opposite. We're called to serve even our enemies, to love even our enemies but to walk humbly but comprehensively with Jesus. To say, whatever you have to say, Jesus, whatever you teach, in whatever area of my life, if once I'm convinced this is really what you said and really what you meant, if we're going to comprehensively follow after this Jesus, it will push each of us into conflict, into being misunderstood, into being mischaracterized, into being hated, into suffering, into ostracism, and for many people around the world today, many of our brothers and sisters, 
into death, into actual martyrs' deaths. And we will all, every one of us, we are going to be tempted. I am all the time, right now, in a very, very cush time and place in the world to be a Christian, ultimately. I am tempted, you will be tempted, to avoid that discomfort, to avoid that pain, to avoid that suffering by disassociating ourselves from this Jesus that in our better moments we claim to follow. We will all be tempted to disassociate ourselves from the one whose association brings that suffering and that ostracism. Jesus Christ. So this forces us to return to the question, the central question of the gospel according to Mark. It was right there, even structurally, in the center point of the book in chapter 8. A question that was answered answered by that, that incredible moment at the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was shown in his divine glory. Just before that, Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? We all have to come to terms with that question. Is Jesus who he claims to be? Is he actually the incarnate Son of God? Is he the anointed King, the Messiah? Does his way genuinely and even exclusively lead to ultimate human flourishing, peace, and justice? Like C.S. Lewis described the lion Aslan in his Narnia books, if we're going to follow Jesus, we, we don't have to, we're not asked to think of him as safe, but we must think of him as good. We must think of him as good. Do you? Who do you say that he is? And will that scaffold you when the sufferings that he promises do actually come? That's a question we all do well to ask ourselves right now. Because they will come. What Jesus says to start, suffering is going to come. It's certain. But he goes on. Things get worse. Things get worse, as, as you heard. Verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, Peter's like, yeah, 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 we're gonna, all these guys are going to fall away, these other ten. And Judas has already done it. They're all going to fall away. I will not. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, this night, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you, Jesus. And everyone said the same. All the disciples. The point of this exchange is that their failure is absolutely certain. He's the eternal son of God. He knows. He knows exactly what's about to happen. He's got divine foreknowledge here. Their failure will happen. Peter supposes he's made of tougher and stronger stuff than the other disciples. He assumes that he's just a little bit more strong, a little bit more faithful, a little bit more true. Though, yeah, these guys, these guys are all right, but I know when push comes to shove, they're going to they're gonna cave. But I won't. I won't. Maybe you are tempted to similarly compare yourself to others. Find yourself strong. Find yourself more, more capable, more able made of tougher stuff. I would just submit to you, comparison to others is virtually never useful for Christian discipleship. The move is never to look to the person to your left and to your right and say, well, I'm certainly better than this person, certainly wiser than this person, certainly tougher than this person, certainly more faithful, I'm certainly more educated, I'm certainly more spiritual, I'm certainly more humble. It's never the answer. 
Mark's story here, it urges us to faithfulness, of course. I mean, the, the negative example here is not one that we are, we're looking to repeat, but it urges us to humility, that even the disciples, even those who were Jesus' friends, brothers, co-workers, hand-selected by him to be his chief messengers, the ones who traveled with him day in and day out, who slept with him, who suffered with him, who he sent out two by two, said, you guys take the gospel out now, even when he was still alive. He did these little training exercises. You guys go. You preach. Come back and tell me. We'll debrief it. These, these 12, now 11, now maybe 10, they fail. They fail. The ones that Jesus entrusted everything to, they fail. So this story should lead us to humility. Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me, you're going to reject me, you're going to totally disassociate yourself from me, you're going to hide your, your relationship with me, not just once, not just twice, it's bad enough, but three times this very night. This is horrifying for two reasons. First, surely by now G Peter knows when Jesus speaks, he speaks with authority. He's been right about enough stuff up to this point that Peter's like, oh no, <laughs> if he says this, this is bad news. Jesus has divine foreknowledge. If he says Peter will deny him, Peter will deny him. Peter's coming, betrayal, rejection, denial, fa failure. It's certain. It's absolutely certain. But it's not just that. Jesus says he will deny him three times. And the significance of that is that this is not just like some momentary lapse. Jesus isn't just saying like, I know like in the heat of the moment, like there's going to be this one-off thing where you're going to stumble and you're going to say, oh yeah, like, no, I, I don't know Jesus or whatever. But you'll quickly come to your senses and kind of get back back on the straight and narrow, as it were. No. By saying, you're going to do this three times, he's saying, something will happen inside Peter, inside Peter's heart, that's going to lead to, at least for a time, I mean, we're just talking about one night here, but for a protracted time, sustained, repeated, intentional, willful distancing from Jesus. Peter's failure is going to not just be kind of the the flurry in the heat of a moment, it's going to be deep and it's going to be significant. It's tragic. Sure, again, I assume we all have significant moments of denying Jesus that haunt us. Significant moments where we've, we've chosen to hide our association. We have denied him. No, I don't know that Jesus. But let us also remember that every time we choose to indulge a pet sin, every time we do that, we are fundamentally denying Jesus' lordship in our lives, at least at that particular point in that particular way. The Bible claims that failure and abandonment of Jesus is true of all of us. It was true before we came to him, and it's still going to be true of us in some ways 50 years after following him. So this negative example of Jesus' closest friends and the leader among the disciples, Peter himself, it's meant to humble you, to humble me, and to remind us about this truth. But there's something else. There's something else in this passage beyond certainty of suffering and the certainty of failure. And it's easy to skip over, but it's the certainty of grace right there in verse 28. That's kind of an insignificant little sentence sandwiched between these two really dark and heavy sayings. 
what this is saying, as deep as our failure runs, it's claiming, the scriptures are claiming, it runs very deep. The loving, merciful grace of Jesus runs far deeper. Far deeper. Jesus says, in the middle there, yes, the suffering's going to come, and then later, yes, Peter, you're going to deny me. Three times, in fact. But look, after I am raised up, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And that might not read like super important. You might go, oh, okay, yeah, he's just talking about where he's going to be after the resurrection. That's fine. What's the big deal about this? But it's a big deal. In a conversation where Jesus is describing his certain abandonment by all of his friends, co-laborers, brothers, he is casually taking them to the certainty of his forgiveness. You see that? Jesus is effectively saying, you're going to abandon me in my moment, literally, literally, of greatest need. You're going to kick me to the curb. You're going to leave me alone to be falsely accused, to be beaten, to be publicly tortured, to be publicly executed. But I'm going to take my life back up. Meet me in Galilee. Meet me in Galilee. I'll meet you there. I will meet you there. Jesus, so subtly here, he is inviting them back into friendship preemptively. The betrayal hasn't even happened yet. And he's already saying, this, all this stuff is going to go horrible. You're going to abandon me the worst I will ever be abandoned. Meet me in Galilee. I'll see you there. I'll see you there. He's inviting them to friendship, back into discipleship, back into leadership, back into family with him. Here we see the basic disposition of Jesus towards the people that he loves, which is grace. The one-way, unearned, loving favor and kindness of God. Even in this moment. Even in this moment. When we speak about grace, we could speak, I mean, volumes and volumes and volumes and books and books and books and articles and articles and prayers and processes. All, so much thought has been given to the subject of grace because it is perhaps the very thing that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. It's the heartbeat of what we believe. I hope it's the heartbeat of what you believe that we serve a gracious God. So we could say so much about it, but I want to I highlight four, piece, four aspects of that grace right now. Just four. The first is this. Can you imagine the shame that these disciples carried from their abandonment of their king at his time of greatest need? Like, imagine this. So this, we know how this plays out. We're going to read about it over the coming weeks leading up to Easter. But we know what happens. They do abandon him. And Jesus is made a, a horrific example by the Roman government of what happens when you get on the wrong side of them. As a, as a deterrent to anyone else, he's going to be so horribly executed that it's meant to be a, a, a horror show meant to deter any, anyone else from getting in this position. And we know that the disciples did, in fact, go and meet Jesus in Galilee. They saw him die. They continued to hide. And they thought all hope was lost. But they, at some point, uh, the first witnesses, these, this group of women, went to the disciples like, we saw him. He's back. He's alive. He says, remember what I said? Meet me in Galilee. So they go, and I just want you to imagine relationally the shame, the fear, 
Not to mention the doubts, of course, but let's imagine they go, okay, sounds like Jesus is back from the dead. <laughs> okay? What's he going to do? Like, this is God. This is God in the flesh, and we just betrayed him at his deepest moment of need. Are we going to show up and get, like, lightning bolted from heaven or something like that, you know? Is he just going to, like, cast us out of his presence? What's he going to do? And we know what he did. He said, Thomas, I know you're still doubting. Put your fingers right here in my wounds. Remember the exchange with Peter, where he says, Peter, let me take you aside. And he asked Peter three times, do you love me? Peter said, yes, I love you. He said, feed my sheep. Saying, step back into this leadership role in the church that I'm building. I want you to lead them. Three times, you get the significance? Three times, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. He gives Peter the chance to totally re-step back into his loving favor with Jesus. To declare his love three times after his abandonment three times. The end of the Gospel of Matthew he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you guys, go and make disciples. And I will be with you always to the end of the age. Whatever shame and fear these disciples were carrying from this, from this betrayal, Jesus totally dismantles it. He just comes with open arms. He comes with this gracious favor. He says, come back into the fold. I love you. I still have work for you to do. I have intimacy that I desire with you. The grace of God brings immeasurable comfort and peace to our shame and our guilt and our fear and our relational anxiety about what does this God think of me now? Because I love you. Come close. So it's comforting grace. It's also unending grace. Why do I say that? I, I say that because if this moment could not break or exhaust Jesus' love for them, what possibly could? If when, at the, the key point of salvation history, when the Son of Man is going to be slain, and his closest disciples say, we're out, we're out, and his answer is, come back close. I forgive you. I love you. I have things for you. I want to, I want to give you my spirit. What else could possibly, could possibly keep these people from his love? This story tells us that the grace of God will never end. It will never be exhausted for those who have received it genuinely. It cannot be exhausted. Praise God for that. This grace is unending. I would also, this is not a, a technical term, but I would just say that we also see kingdom grace here. And what I mean by that is that we are reminded by this passage that it is not, like, the purposes of God, the advancement of his kingdom, which that's what Jesus came to do. He came to tell about his kingdom. He came to enact his kingdom. He came to let the kingdom break in. It has in part, and it's coming in full one day. That's what we wait for at the second advent. But he says, these purposes, the advancement of his kingdom, is not, it is not dependent on human effort, human strategizing, human faithfulness. The most fundamental event that brought in the kingdom, 
the death and resurrection of Jesus, it happened while the disciples were done. They were gone. They were out of the picture. Jesus' purposes are not dependent on the faithfulness of any person. And they, furthermore, they could not be deterred by the rebellion or the fear or the anxiety or the abandonment of every single person in his midst. The grace of the kingdom is that God's purposes will advance no matter what. He wants us to play a part. He has things for us to do. He has good works for us to walk in. He has justice for us to bring about all these beautiful and wonderful and amazing things. He says, if, you've, if you fail, it's okay. My purposes march forward. They advance. And this was the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, friends. His purposes are not dependent on your effort or on mine. We see it right here. We see it right here. And then maybe the last thing I would say on this grace at this point is that it's an emboldening grace. And this is one of the tricky, I would say, one of the trickier things about Christian theology is that when you, as soon as you start talking about grace, there's this idea that you start opening up the door towards like a libertinism. Just to do whatever you want. Well, there's grace. I'll do whatever I want. Therefore, how I live, it doesn't matter. Therefore, what I do, it doesn't matter, etc., etc., etc. Sometimes, the free grace of God, which is how the Bible describes it, free. That's an accurate descriptor of grace. Free. The free gift of God. Sometimes, that free, free grace can be misunderstood. It can be abused. It can be turned into what Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, calls cheap grace. Probably a lot of you have heard that phrase before. Or maybe you read that book. Cheap, this is Bonhoeffer. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. What I mean by emboldening grace is that every time the New Testament talks about the free grace of God, it's not, you know, and Paul addresses this specifically in Romans, should I just go on sinning so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. The grace is meant to embolden us towards greater faithfulness. It's like in any relationship when someone, I mean, the best example I can think of uh, that I've experienced is in a marital relationship. Like there's this idea that my wife and I have covenanted to one another. We have made what is meant to be an unbreakable promise to remain faithful to one another until death do us part. And the cheap grace view of that would say, great, I've got a wife that loves me and she's committed herself to me. Therefore, I'll do whatever I want. I'll do whatever I want. I'll sleep with whoever I want. Tragically, many people, many people take that tack. Many people do take that tack. The emboldened grace view would say, I've got someone who has committed themselves to me. They have loved me so much. They have given me this lifelong, indissolvable commitment to be next to me to serve me, to care for me. How could I not want to serve and love them in an even deeper way? How could I not want to give them everything that I have? Do I do that 100% of the time? Absolutely not. Do I do that with Jesus 100% of the time? Absolutely not. But that's the heart. The grace of God is meant to motivate a genuine like, desire to actually be obedient. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. 
Expressing love for God, it's not just simple obedience, but obedience is an essential part of it. Our grace is meant to make us go, oh my goodness, this God is so good. He's so freely giving. He's so generous. He's so loving that if he says, this is, this is what he desires of me, I want to do that. Yes, I'll fail. Yes, I'll fall. Yes, I'll do it imperfectly. Yes, I will absolutely fail at some point or another. But my desire is over and over again being built and built and scaffolded and scaffolded and scaffolded that this is what I want. I ultimately want the things of him. I'm ultimately pushed over the course of a lifetime into deeper and deeper trust, deeper and deeper love, deeper and deeper what we might call sanctification, spiritual formation, change. That's the heart of grace. It's meant to make us more and more and more into Christ-likeness into Christ-likeness. And that's a good thing. Because on, on a cheap grace scheme, there's no room for Jesus to actually make you and me into the kind of people that are actually representative of who he is in this world. His desire is for us to be these little previews here even as a community, this little kingdom preview of the goodness that's coming when Christ returns. We're going to do it imperfectly. We're going to do it in flawed ways. But when people look at Door of Hope Northeast, when they look at your families, when they look at your households, when they look at you and how you are as an employee and as a friend and as a daughter and a son and a sibling and whatever else, they go, something different there. That's, that, that, that's got the flavor of heaven. And that only happens if this grace is actually received for what it's meant to be, something that pushes us and motivates us and transforms us more and more and more and more and more. Amen? That's the heart. So what is Jesus like? What is Jesus like when he encounters abject failure in his disciples? You want to know? He says, after I'm raised up, I'll go before you in Galilee. I love you. Come to me and find more and more and more grace. And the disciples, we know from the rest of the New Testament, they didn't stay abandoned. They didn't stay distant. They didn't stay uh, in their shame. They let Jesus restore them. They came close once again. And they failed again, certainly. But they kept coming back to this gracious God. And they were the vehicles by which he did what he promised, which was to build his church that the gates of hell have not and will not prevail against. And that's our story, friends. When we fail, the invitation is always to come back into his loving arms. Every time. Every time. No one is too far gone to receive this grace. But you do have to receive it. You do have to receive it. You do have to throw yourselves at his feet at his feet and say, Jesus, I want it. I want you. Save me. Whoever confesses with his mouth and believes in his heart that Jesus is Lord, he will be saved. You have to do that. It's very simple. Praise be to God. So this is our Jesus, friends. This is our Jesus. The rest of our time today, let's worship him in response. Why don't you pray with me?